chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34. How are we doing up there, guys? Psalm 34 is one of my favorite psalms. If you're new here at Fullness, uh, this is your first time, we're doing a summer of songs, meaning we're looking at the psalms, uh, various psalms, not all 150. That would take a little too many. I thought about doing that, but we'd be here until like 2018 uh, looking at the various psalms. And as great as they are, I wanted to give you a variation of the Psalms, to let you see some of the different types of Psalms that there are so that you can read them for yourself, you can study them for yourself, you can enjoy them for yourself. I know we've all read the Psalms many times. We sing the Psalms in church. Um, More Psalms, portions of the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament than any other book. Uh, The Psalms is a book that we turn to in times of trouble, at times of gladness. It is a great and awesome book. And we've looked at various psalms. Last week, Dave Malik was here and preached on Psalm 51, a song of forgiveness. I'd encourage you to get the CD or tape. Dave did a wonderful job of taking apart that great psalm of David of repentance and forgiveness. And so I would encourage you to get that. Today, we're going to look at one of my favorite psalms, uh, one of the ones about worship and praise and devotion and thanksgiving, it's Psalm 34. And Psalm 34.1 starts off with the phrase, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. It's easy to praise God, by the way, and follow him when things are going great, isn't it? When life is just rosy and moving quite along, it's easy to step back and say, praise God, it's awesome. God is doing great things. I've got enough money. I've got health. My kids aren't too rebellious. Things are are good, and I can praise God. But at times when things are going really difficult in our lives, when things are falling apart around us, when there are challenges, when there are things aren't that great. Do we maintain that same attitude of praise and celebration, worship and thanksgiving and fellowship with God? We've looked at the various psalms, and many of them, as you've seen, are psalms of crying out to God. God, where are you? Things are horrible. Things are bad. Things are terrible. I know you're a great God. I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control. We've looked at various psalms. This psalm is incredibly unique because In it, you don't necessarily see where David really is when he's writing this psalm, but I I just want to kind of cue you up as you head into it that David is not at the top of his game. David is not like king celebrating. He is in a world of hurt and trouble when he writes this psalm. The, The line before verse one, and remember the headings in the psalms are part of the Bible. They are They are included in the original. It says this, Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. Well, right there, that should tell you David's not doing really great. That things aren't really, really going really great for him. And if you'll remember the story, 
Uh, this psalm, like so many psalms, is, is embedded, is a part of history. It's not, it's not a song written uh, in a vacuum. It's not a psalm written by a guy at a desk who just doesn't have bad things going on. He's just going to say, I'm going to write a poem to God today. This is really a part of the historical context, and you can see it in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. David is running from Saul. Remember David, without going through the whole uh, kingly line, Saul is king, David was a shepherd, uh, God has removed his anointing from Saul. Uh, Samuel has anointed David king secretly, but anointed him king as a young shepherd boy. David goes out, slays Goliath, becomes a great warrior, great musician. People start singing songs to him, basically saying Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. Well, if you're king, it's not really, you know, Saul had his issues. He had his issues really above all else. Saul's primary issue is that he cared more about what people thought than about what God thought. Constantly through his life, he's battling, what do people think about me? What do people think about me? What do people think about me? And he's so, even though he looks good, he's a tall guy, he's a warrior, he's the kind of king that people wanted. Everything they wanted in a king, Saul was. Except, Saul was more concerned about them than hearing from God and doing what God told him. So you can see how when David comes along, good-looking shepherd boy, slays Goliath when nobody else can, now they're singing songs to David, how this plays into Saul's weakness, and now he's just shattered. To the point he's going insane himself, literally, tries to have David killed, David has to go on the run. I mean, he's got nowhere to go. I mean, who are the tens of thousands that David has slain? Well, it's the enemies, and the enemies are all around Israel. So David can't stay in Israel because Saul is king. He's trying to kill him. He's put a bounty on his head. He's got to go outside of Israel, which means he's got to go to the enemy's camp where he's slain thousands, tens of thousands. So he goes to Gath, which is right outside of uh, the nation of Israel, Gath. And there, a king by the name of Achish is the king of Gath. Now, I'm going to try this a little loaded heavy on the front end. So don't worry about the six points. We'll get to them, but I'm, I'm going to be moved quickly through the last four of them pretty quick. So don't panic, because this first stuff is really good. I love this stuff. So David goes to the king of the Philistines. He goes to that area, Gath. Now, Achish is king, and you see here it says when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech. And in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, you won't see the name of Abimelech, because Abimelech is the name, the general name given to the Philistine kings. That's why Abim- it says Abimelech. It's like the king of the Philistines. Uh, they're all called Abimelech in some way, even though they have different names. So he goes here, and he knows that he can't kind of go there by himself. He's on the run. They're going to kill him. Uh, you may remember uh, there was a big guy who was from Gath, whose name was Goliath, who had some brothers. and I mean, so David is literally going into a place where they hate him. So the best thing he can come up with is, I'll act insane. Now, you might say, well, what good is that going to do? Well, in ancient history, if someone was insane, they didn't kill them. They felt like it was just kind of a general unwritten rule. If someone was insane, we're not going to hurt them. We're not going to kill them. Kind of a mercy thing. So David has, 
is pretending to be insane. He's got spittle running down his face. He's scratching on the claws of the city gates. I mean, it's the only way he can stay alive. The king of Gath brings him, Achish brings him in and says, what is the deal? This is David. Why don't we kill him? Oh, he's insane. Just let him run loose, but uh, it'd be better if he left town. So David is forced to leave that area, and he goes to some caves, the caves of Adullam. And in these caves, he's just hiding out. Now, these caves are close to the place where he slew Goliath. They're right next to it. So it's incredible at times when things are really, really, really going bad. Sometimes it's good to go to the place where we, God moved and to hear from God again and try and get back into a place where we can hear God, to reminisce and reflect and remember and recall. I think we all need a cave of a dulem at times to step back and to say, God, what in the world? I remember your goodness. You're a great God, but what's going on here? The narrative gets even more interesting here because in these caves, a bunch of people start hearing that David is hidden there. And eventually, 400 people, 400 men, who are discouraged, distressed, disenfranchised, some other D words we could probably think of, they're, they're, they're not in a good place. They flee from King Saul as well, and they come to David in the caves of Adullam. I mean, think about it. This is where David is at this moment. He's been running from a guy who wants to kill him, who he thinks the best of. He's really done everything to, to serve Saul and, and really promote him. Now that guy's trying to kill him. He's had to act insane, barely made it out of there with his life. He's hiding in a cave. Now he's got 400 depressed guys with him. And yet he can step back and say, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You think David's got some fears right now? Those who look to him, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have 
many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. The psalm is beautiful no matter where David was when he wrote it. But because he's hiding in a cave after acting insane and having to flee for his life with 400 guys who are troubled around him, it makes it to me just life. David's overriding heart is total and complete devotion to God, no matter what. No matter what. Listen, I, I, I understand that we're here today from all different places. Some of us, we've had just an incredible couple of weeks. Things have been great. Family vacations could be bad or good, I know, but uh, family va- you, things have been going great. Life is good, and others of you are here today, and your life is shattered. Life has fallen apart around you. It has not worked like you wanted, like you thought it would, like you believed it would. What do you do? To me, this Psalm of David just cuts right to it and says, look, no matter what, here's my position before God. None of us, or almost none of us, will go through what David has already been through. And yet, he can say, I am totally devoted to God. So from this Psalm, I just want to take it apart and show you what I believe are the ways the pathway to devotion. What is it that makes David so devoted to to God? And the first point is this. First, worship God. Seeking God and being devoted to him is revealed by the way we worship. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I've preached sermons on these first couple of verses about worship, and I'm going to be tempted to get bogged down here, so I'm going to try and move through the passage and just highlight for you some of the characteristics I see in worship because I think it's critical for us as worshipers to know what it is we're supposed to be doing. But if we're going to be devoted to God, we've got to worship him no matter what. And that's really where David starts. He starts with that phrase, I will. It's an act of your will. It's not an act of your emotions. It's not whether you feel like it or don't feel like it because your emotions are going to drive you different places. But by the, by the grace of God, David says, I will. I'm determined to celebrate God. My mind and my spirit are fixed. My heart is riveted on him. When you come to worship on Sunday morning or when you worship throughout the week, which we should all be doing, there are going to be days when you get up and you don't feel like it. There are going to be moments when you don't feel like it. Instead, I want to encourage you, say, I will bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's an act of his will. It's also constant. I will extol the Lord at all times. 
all times. Now, I, you know, we do this silly thing around here. What does all mean here? Well, all means all, all the time. So in saying that, is worship what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday morning here at Fullness? Well, yes, but not limited to. If this is the only time you're worshiping, then we've got a problem. We're to be worshiping God at all times. All times means all times. No matter where you are, what you're doing, you should be in a position, everything you do in life should be an act of worship before the Lord. And let me say this, if you can't do something as an act of worship before God, you probably shouldn't be doing it. I mean, really. If you can't say, hey, I'm watching this TV show and my relaxation watching this and being entertained is an act of worship before God, you probably shouldn't be watching it. I don't want to get in some legalistic kind of thing, but if I'm going to worship God at all times, then i got to be doing stuff in which I worship God in everything I do. My work is an act of worship. Everything. You can just let your mind go wherever. Everything, though, in life is created by God and within his context can be an act of worship before him. And my contention has always been that worship, when we come together on Sunday morning, shouldn't be a bunch of people that have to kind of get kick-started in worship. Like, oh, I haven't worshiped God all week, and now it's going to take me like three or four songs to get into worship. I mean, if we're worshiping God at all times, then we are a bunch of worshipers, and the, the only difference is we move from the individual to the corporate, and it should be an explosion of worship that takes place in this building. When the body of Christ gathers, gathers to worship. By the way, I think worship is, if we're doing it all the time, it keeps us level. It keeps us even. My friend Troy is a pilot. I don't know anything about flying much. Um, not much. I know that you go up and hopefully come down and you get to the place you want to be quicker uh, than you would have. But in In the airplanes, they have an attitude indicator, which I just always love this phrase, an attitude indicator. It's not if you're going up or down or if you're level to the horizon because you get into different places and clouds, and it's got other fancy names, but I like the name attitude indicator. Every so often in my family at home, sometimes I want an attitude indicator to just kind of say, hey, how are we doing here? Because we got some toods working at times in my house. And probably yours as well. And we go up and down and all around. And sometimes I'm afraid we're going to crash and burn. To me, worship is like the, the horizon against which everything else is measured. We worship God at all times. And it keeps us on and even keel. And keeps us moving forward as God wants us to move forward. By declaring... God, you're worthy. God, you're praiseworthy. Everything goes your direction. Because when we have attitude problems, most of the time it's because we're so concerned about us. My needs are not getting met. Things are not going my way. I hate that song. Third, worship is vocal. His praise will always be on my lips. Now, I'm not talking about being that crazy guy going around saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all the time. 
But I'm just talking about just speaking the goodness of God to the people around you. Thinking about God, meditating about God, those are always, those are all good things, but I think worship becomes praise when it's spoken, when it's shouted, when it's sung, when it's said. It's also boastful. My soul will boast in the Lord. Worship is bragging about God. What, what is it that you brag about all the time? Well, most of the time we brag about things we did. We brag about our children. We brag about our jobs. We brag about whatever. Do you know, if you kind of look at the Bible from a different angle at times, what you kind of come to discover is that what you brag about is what you ultimately worship. What you are boasting in are the things that you really place your trust. David is going to boast in the Lord. Now, by the way, David, I, I think David had some things he could have bragged about. Even in this cave, he could have gathered these 400 guys around him. And he could have said, hey, have I told you guys? About the time I killed that guy right outside the cave here. Big, big guy. I took him down. Have I told you about the time I ran two marathons on one? No, no, that was me. Have I told you? Have I told you about the time Samuel came to my house and anointed me king? Just me. Skipped all my brothers. Have you heard that song they sing about me? Saul, thousands, David, tens of thousands. I mean, he had a bunch of stuff that he could have bragged in. But David is, I mean, he's been acting, he's had to act insane to save his life. He's now hanging out in a cave with these 400 guys, which is a pretty good-sized church to kick things off with. It's not bad, but, you know, they're not in the best place. They're hiding. They're not out evangelizing, so to speak. David's broken. So he's going to say, I'm going to brag. I'm going to boast in the Lord. He says, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Somehow I skipped that one. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Other translations say, let the humble hear and rejoice. When the humble hear, they're going to join in the rejoicing. In other words, worship is infectious or contagious. By the way, so is grumbling and complaining. I don't know which is more infectious, but let's go with the one that's going to lead us in the positive direction. Amen? Let's go with the worship of God. And, and I like this phrase, the humble here and rejoice, because the proud are not. The proud are too self-centered to hear. They're worshiping themselves. They're boasting in themselves. They're not going to boast in the Lord. They're too concerned with their own needs. But the humble who are already broken in some way, they're going to hear and they're going to rejoice. And finally, David says, worship is corporate. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us rejoice in his name together. To me, these six characteristics of worship, which I know are a sermon in and of itself in this one point, it's willful, it's constant, it's vocal, it's boastful in the Lord, it's contagious, it's corporate, are critical aspects of centering ourselves in the worship of the Lord. 
The second point that David talks about, not only in worshiping God, but in being devoted to God, is to pursue God. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. The angels of the Lord encamp around him. Those who fear him, he delivers them. To me, this pursuing God is really is really about prayer. About prayer, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Now, I know that we think of prayer as this certain way of doing things, of speaking to God. But ultimately, to me, prayer is seeking God and him answering me. A conversation, so to speak, a dialogue between me and God. So David seeks after God, and he hears from God. And as a result of pursuing God... He's freed from all his fears. Again, David's got a lot he could be afraid about right now. I mean, really, we, most of us, we, we may have tr- things going on, but most of us don't have a, a king with an army trying to kill us. I mean, we may have other people who want to kill us, but we don't have really a, like a nation coming against us, hiding in a cave, barely trying to get food and water and sustenance and survival. Yet David can say, I sought the Lord. He answered me. I heard from him. He delivered me from all my fears. Fear is paralyzing, is it not? I mean, have you ever... Kathy was out of town last weekend. I'm not afraid to admit this. I was laying in bed. Most of my kids were gone too. I I can't even remember. I think it was just me and I think Olivia was down in the basement asleep. Everybody else was gone from the house. So I'm laying in bed, I'm about to fall asleep, totally confident. I hear this, like, noise. And you start, I mean, you're just lying there, and you think, and now if Kathy had been there, I don't know what she'd have done either. I mean, she's five foot two. But fear, it just keeps you awake as you kind of stumble through the night thinking of everything bad that could possibly be about to happen. God delivers us from our fears as we pursue him, as we seek him. As he, he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, sound mind. Seek after him. I, I, he delivers us from shame. There's a radiant glow on the faces of those who pursue God. They glow in God's presence. The enemy just tries to put shame on us and heap shame on us, but as we pursue God, he delivers us from that. Here's the deal. Most of us have done things we have every right to be ashamed about, right? I mean, ultimately, probably in the last 24 hours, if you were to really take a step back and say, oh, my lands, I am so ashamed of the way I spoke or what I did or how I acted or the way I thought or how self-centered I was. I mean, the list can just go on and on. And the enemy is there just to jump in. He'll answer you if that's what you want to seek. He'll answer you with condemnation, shame. He'll just keep it on you. And you just will keep going down that road. But if you want to turn the corner away from that, seek after God. Pursue him. He'll answer you. He'll say, you are who I say you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, all the passages we know, 
Even though we screw up, God forgives. And God places us in a position where we can still have the radiant glow of his presence on our face. Lord, here's the poor man who pursues him. You don't have to be rich. He saves you. And he encamps his presence around us. As we pursue God in prayer and seek after him, he answers us. He is there with us at every moment. Third point. Here's where we're going to pick up a little tempo. Enjoy God. Enjoy God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, as I said at the beginning of the service, this is remarkable to me that we are commanded to taste God. Not to just know God or think about God or remember God. We are to taste God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. Enjoy the presence of the Lord. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, flips this phrase around and said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. A satisfaction, an enjoyment. And we can't do that unless we experience God for ourselves. Now listen, if you are raised in fullness, listen to me really quick. I, I, it is not enough for me as your pastor to say, look, I just want to teach you Bible stories, Bible knowledge, Bible information. I want you to know how to do all the books of the Bible, all 66 of them. I hope you can go to college singing those songs Miss Kathy taught you when you were little. For me, that is not enough. For me, what I want for you is to taste and see that the Lord is good. That you would know God for yourself. That you would know his presence, you would know his power, so that when life slaps you upside the head, which it will, it will knock you down, it will run you over, it'll kick you when you're down, you can still say, not the little song of the 66 books of the Bible, but you can say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I know God. And I know God is with me. And I will not stand on just information about God, but I'm going I'm to seize hold of the truth that God loves me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When Kathy and I go out to a nice restaurant, we have this ritual we go through all the time. Because um, I usually look at the menu and I pick quickly what it is I want. I know what I want to eat off this menu. Kathy is like troubled <laughs> because there are so many great choices and she doesn't want to choose wrongly. How many of you have been to dinner with me and Kathy? Somebody say amen. You know, you've seen. She just wants to choose the right thing and she doesn't. So, uh, you know, I have finally said to her, Don, you just pick something. And whatever it is, if you don't like it, I'll switch with you. Now, I know that's really wonderful on my part, isn't it? But I just want to eat something by then. I just want some food. I don't want to go through the whole... So we get it. we've gotten into this routine where we basically split meals. Because isn't it miserable to go and you're eating and tasting and seeing that this food is great and the person you're with hates their meal? Doesn't that just ruin the experience for everybody? Well, at least for the two of you as you're at the table or whoever. 
So it's better just for me to switch and say, hey, enjoy this. and let's, Because there's a, t- there's a tasting and seeing individually, but there's also, to me, a tasting and seeing corporately. Together, we see that God is good. Because, for, like I said, in life, some of us, things are going to be going great. For other of us, things aren't so good. But if together we're just pursuing God, enjoying God, how great and encouraging is that to be a part of a body in which people are going hard after God? Fourth point, which is an interesting flip to after enjoying God, is this. Fear God. Fear God. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, he's going to teach us the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies, Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's incredible to me that David can flip in one verse from tasting to fearing. Tasting and fearing. I don't think these two are at all incompatible. Because in tasting and seeing God, we see that he is awesome. He's majestic. We stand before him in reverence. But ultimately, to taste and see that the Lord is good, we're going to follow his ways. Look what he says. I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and fear. Here's how you fear. Well, how do you fear? If you love life, desire me good days, do what? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. We follow God's ways. If we fear God, then we follow his ways. You know, Jesus said it in a different way. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, in other words, it starts with love, and out of love, we we follow his ways. Fear of the Lord, love of the Lord, pursuing God, worshiping him will result in us following the ways of the Lord. When we do, we lack nothing. Lack nothing. We receive not only more than nothing, we receive abundant life. Now, he does say the righteous man is going to have trouble. So he's not saying what we in America think he should be saying. In other words, he's not, he's not preaching a prosperity doctrine. That you're going to have everything you need, you're never going to get sick, you're never going to have problems, you're never going to be hiding in a cave with 400 disgruntled men. Because that's where David was. But he's, he can say in the midst of that, I lack nothing. Because I fear God, I don't fear Saul. I don't fear what he could do to me, I don't fear this king, because I've seen what God can do. David's a guy, hey, God delivered me from the lion, he delivered me from the bear, he took care of that uncircumcised Philistine. He's taking care of this army. He's, I'm going to fear God. Fear God. So taste and see, then fear God, which kind of goes along with the next point, which is obey God, to do what he tells us to do. The eyes of the Lord are on who? Well, let me get it up there, and you can see if you don't have any rival. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The righteous person is the one who's obeying God. And his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. 
He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. True devotion to God results in us being righteous. Now, again, I could get bogged down here because then now I could preach the whole book of Romans to talk about um, being righteous and that righteousness doesn't come to us by what we do, but it's a gift of God. Through Jesus Christ, we become right in God's sight because of what Christ did for us on the cross. But as those who are right, we now walk right. And it's not in a legalistic way. It's in that love relationship with Jesus. But ultimately, at some point, Here's how love wins. Love wins because God's grace is greater than my sin. Love wins because Christ died on the cross for me. Love wins because God changes who I am and how I respond. Love doesn't win because by me saying I can do whatever the heck I please and God has to love me. That attitude will get us down a road we don't want to be. As a matter of fact, David says, hey, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears them, he delivers it. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. Who, who, gets, to, who gets to decide what's evil? Who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? It's not me, and it's surely not you. Not that you're any less than me, but it's not us is what I'm saying. We don't get to choose. God gets to choose what is right. God gets to decide, here, I'm telling you, this is the way to act. This is the way you're supposed to walk. Now, I understand the Bible's a complicated thing. Trying to figure out which of these things apply then and which apply now and which... But God will give us grace to, to figure our way through it by the spirit of truth that he implants in us. But ultimately, we've got, to, we've got to obey God. Charles Spurgeon says, talking about the disobedient, he says, he will stamp out their fires, their honor shall be turned into shame, their names forgotten or accursed, utter destruction shall be the lot of all the ungodly. By the way, when does this happen? You may be saying, well, I, you know, I remember Hitler. His name's still around. Stalin, they did some pretty bad things. There will be a day. There will be a day. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. I believe this is an, uh, a look toward the end of time when God is going to say, hey, those who are righteous in my sight by Christ and how, who they are, Their names are remembered. Their names are in the book of life. Every other name will be wiped out. Final point, trust God. A righteous man will have many troubles. In this world, you will have troubles. (laughs) Thanks, Mr. Buddy. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Listen, this is a very poetic, 
hyperbole way of saying. Is God promising that not you're, you'll never break a bone? No, he's saying that he, if you take refuge in him, which is the term for trusting, those who take refuge in him, run into him like a strong tower, trust him, God will protect you. Does that mean I'll never die or you'd never get? No, God's going to protect you. Ultimately, God is your refuge. God is your strength. The problem is that we look to God for things God never said he, we could trust him for. In other words, again, as 21st century Americans, we at times try to put some trust things on God. God never said, turn to me to trust for. In other words, God never said that he would always do things your way. But that's how we come to God. God, look, I've really thought about this. Here's my plan. Please approve my plan. Walk with me on my plan. Here's how life's going to go. I'm going to meet this girl. We're going to get married. We're going to have 2.5 children. They're all going to be healthy and obey, and I'm going to make all this money, and I'm going to have this house, and I'm going to have this car. God, this plan is really, really good. And I promise you that if you'll do this plan, God, I'll, 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 give, you, I'll give you 12%. I'll give you more than 10. I'll give you 12, maybe 15 I'll really, God, you know, we do this. We negotiate with God. And then when our plan, our plan doesn't go right, we say, well, there must not be a God. Or God doesn't love me. Or I can't trust God. Don't trust God for things God never said he was going to do. If you want to find wisdom, by the way, where do you find wisdom? In God. The fear of the Lord is the, that's just the starting point. Not your plan. I, I could get, I'm getting bogged down. I'm sorry. You can't manipulate circumstances in order to bring, he won't, he won't manipulate circumstances in order to bring you worldly success. He won't do things according to your schedule or timetable. Those are not things God says, trust me for. But what you can trust God for, from a biblical standpoint, is to keep you secure in his love. To provide guidance for you if you need wisdom or direction. To forgive you when you sin. Not if you'll sin, but when you sin. He will forgive you. To supply you with spiritual satisfaction. Joy in his presence. Eternal pleasures at his right hand. To be with you when things go bad. When you walk through the floods and the fires and the tough times, God has promises to be with you. By the way, notice he doesn't say, I'll keep you from having to go through the flood, or I'll keep you from having to go through the fire. His promise is when you do go through them, I'm going to be there with you. He promises to always be the same because his attributes never change. He promises to grant us peace and joy and purpose in all things. Trust God. I love, love, love this psalm. I love it because when things are not going like I think they should be going in my life, it recenters me to say, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. 
Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name, fullness together. May we be a people who worship God, pursue God, enjoy God, fear God, obey God, trust God in all, all, all things at all times. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of looking at a passage like this where David, who we know things are going to turn out pretty good for, but he doesn't know it yet, still can look to you, worship you, trust you, celebrate you. God, I pray today for those who are part of fullness that are here that may be undergoing difficult times, difficult circumstances, difficult things. I pray that their hearts and minds will be centered upon you. We will together extol you, worship you, celebrate you, taste you, fear you, pursue you, trust in you, obey you. Not because of us, but for your namesake. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we leave, we're going to worship God through the giving of an offering. We don't give out of